Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Florida bolsters its reputation as an anti-LGBTQ state with a new rule. Trans residents can't update their driver's license with their correct gender identity. Plus, a New Hampshire town manager resigned after being harassed in an ongoing controversy about an LGBTQ art display. And the Massachusetts State Senate unanimously passed a bill to repeal several archaic sodomy and anti-trans laws. That and more on our LGBTQ News Roundtable. Later in the show, the blood-soaked heritage of America's enslavement of an estimated 10 million Africans is a fact. Yet some Americans refuse to recognize the communal inherited pain, shame, and anger linked to that history or to discuss it openly. The idea was to take a complex subject and ask people to just reduce it to what is most important to them, their memories, their laments, their anthems, their anxieties, their triumphs. And I printed 200 cards, and the cards started to come back to me. But conversations about this fraught history are happening, according to the author and journalist Michelle Norris. Norris probes the behind-closed-doors dialogues in her latest book, Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. Plus, GBH has just launched Reckoning and Repair, a multi-year initiative exploring America's struggle to come to grips with its history. But first, joining me remotely, Grace Sterling Stowell, Executive Director of the Boston Alliance of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer Youth, or Bagley. E.J. Graff, journalist, author, and managing editor of Good Authority, an independent site publishing insights on political science. And Polly Crozier, director of family advocacy for GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders, or GLAD. Welcome to you all. Hi, Callie. Great to be back, Callie. All right, let's dive in. Um, I want to talk about the Massachusetts police chief who had to apologize after um, starting a uh, or carrying a search of a middle school for an LGBTQ book with, quote, concerning illustrations. So this was at the W.E.B. Du Bois Regional Middle School. Um, and... Somebody complained that the illustrated characters were performing sexual acts. And for whatever reason, police chief Paul Sorty decided, you know, they had an obligation to go and investigate. As people may imagine, the the school said, hey, this is an education problem. We don't understand how the police got um, involved in it. And um, but it's, you know, part of the ongoing controversy that has been stirred about banning and centering uh, certain books, those particularly with um, LGBTQ content matter. So first, uh, let's just get everybody's response to that. Did you hear about this case? And what do you think about it? I'll start with you, EJ. What I had, I had a, a sort of paradoxical response, which is I am so proud of Massachusetts that he had to apologize, right? Because what we're hearing in about other states is that the minute someone dislikes a book, 
it comes out of the library. Um, people can lose their jobs for even mentioning the books. This movement to stop young people from learning about anything that they're that someone in the community doesn't like is really shocking. And I'm I'm glad it, when it when someone made this call in our state, the result was an apology. I did not say uh, where this was. This is Great Barrington Police Department, um, and it's in the Berkshire Hills Regional School District, and that is the the school district that responded. Uh, the book was um, Grace, Gender Queer, a Memoir, and this is not the first time that that particular book has been under assault in other places. Um, the non-binary author uses gender-neutral pronouns to tell the story um, from adolescence to adulthood and recounts the author's exploration of gender identity, according to this story. Well, of course, this is very disturbing. And, you know, for those who think it can't happen here in Massachusetts, it is happening here in Massachusetts. Uh, the right wing attempts to uh, to demonize and target LGBT communities and other communities is th this is an example of that. And, uh, you know, certainly the, the targeting of any books uh, around trans content, uh, LGBT content, critical race theory, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a slippery slope. And uh, I'm certainly glad that the, in the end, the, the police chief had to apologize, but how traumatizing to have the police show up uh, uh, for, for students and teachers and to investigate something where, where one, one, there isn't a problem and two, as, as has said, it should have been, it should have been handled. It's an education issue, a call to the principal and a discussion, but it was treated as though it was something very different, but this is the climate we're in. And yes, it can happen here in Massachusetts. Polly Crozier, you know, um, as we've said, there are some states where there are now legal restrictions against certain books. Um, but this was not the case. And it just, I mean, I, I'm just kind of appalled about how it escalated to police involvement. Right. I think it was appalling. I think it was shocking. I think parents in the community were really scared and terrified. Um, Glad heard from parents in the community, and we actually worked together with the ACLU to to look at the the law and to send a letter to um, local officials because it really should have never gotten to the police level. Yeah, it was. Um, it should have been um, the complaint. The police should have directed the complaint right back to the school. The school um, would have dealt with it appropriately. Um, and I think it's just a sign of right, like for other folks have said, like extremism in our own communities. And just a reminder that you know there are guidelines for how schools and libraries deal with um, kind of alleged obscenity issues, um, and that police involvement is never appropriate. All right, I'm going to move over to New Hampshire. Um, we had talked about on another show this uh, contretemps that kicked up in a um, uh, small New Hampshire community about an art display. Now, a couple things to know. There were three pieces of art that were sponsored by the LGBTQ group North County Pride, and um, it was on private property. The art uh, went up last summer on the side of a Chinese restaurant, just for people who are wondering what it looked like. It was a subtle rainbow meant to symbolize inclusivity. Um, but there was one person in particular in the town, uh, State Senator Carrie Jindro, 
who uh, found this to be really, really offenses, offensive and said she didn't want it to be here. This was, you know, offensive to her on many levels and, and had, you know, made a, a big protest about it. Um, I thought when we talked about it uh, a few months ago, it had uh, died down. Um, of course, she hadn't. She, she saying that there were some demonic hidden messages in the art had not died down, but it, it seemed to, in the other places in the community had. But this is a long story short to say that Jim Gleason he is was the Littleton, New Hampshire town manager, resigned and said, you know, he'd had it. So let's listen to him first. Art banned became the buzzword when real reality, what it was, it was an absolute assault on people for who they love. When you're working with someone and they call a family member an abomination, that's kind of when it started. All right, Polly, I'll start with you. What's your response? Oh, my gosh. I feel so sad for um, Mr. Gleason, for the town. Um, it's, I mean, really, first and foremost, heartbreaking that he had to experience someone denigrating his beloved child in that way. I, it's, it's heartbreaking. Losing a child is hard enough. And to have, you know, in the course of your job to be treated like that, it's just really heartbreaking. Um, and and then I think, you know, to me, it just, I, I can't believe it got to this place. The the paintings, which were, by the way, lovely, um, were on private property. There was truly kind of nothing he could do about it. Um, and to me, it's just a sign that, that, that at some points, like, we've lost kind of the notion of like basic human kindness, that there's, um, that we really need to be leading with kindness and not with division. Um, and, you know, a beautiful painting on the wall, you might not like it, you go on your way, um, but you should not be treating people with so much disrespect. And, um, you know, we're driving really wonderful public servants out of key positions. Um, and it really makes me worried. Well, I would also add, you know, we just talked about a situation where people found some of the images offensive. This is a flower and a plant, EJ. So it's a little hard to understand the offense of the image, which is at the heart of this. So I was um, way too uh, cheery in my first response. I'm going to I'm going to bring it back down to. Um, I think I'm going to use the word horror here. Uh, I think what's happening nationwide is a demonization of anyone that does not fit in the Trump universe of who counts as an acceptable citizen. And this is one of one example of um, independent people going after anything that might suggest that those of us outside that group might be okay. As you say, if you take a look at the picture, the rainbow is really subtle. It's absolutely not the main thing in the in the painting. Um, and who doesn't like a rainbow? I mean, seriously. But you, if you are looking to demonize and looking to attack, anyone who supports the rainbow at this point is going to be a target. Uh, as Polly said, the cruelty is pretty astonishing. Grace, what say you? You know, I'm 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 just thinking of the young people and the messages that they're hearing from 
from elected officials, whether that's uh, you know in New Hampshire or nationally, and this continued blurring of the lines between uh, religion and politics, and and for as others have pointed out, for something that was really innocuous, a beautiful you know piece of artwork, you know it's it's nothing that is uh, that is remotely offensive uh, unless you're somebody who is mean spirited in the first place. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Grace Sterling Stoll, Executive Director of Bagley, E.J. Graff, Managing Editor of Good Authority, and Polly Crozier, Director of Family Advocacy for GLAAD. We're talking about the latest stories of LGBTQ news. Now, I want to go to Florida. That's come up a lot recently, particularly with regard to um, issues linked to LGBTQ population there and elsewhere. So in Florida now, they're instituting, uh, uh, they have instituted a new state rule, um, which says that trans people may not, may not update their documentation on their driver's license um, with their correct gender identity. Now, uh, the, the, the piece that we have here says that this was not prompted by any new law. This was just out of the blue, they just decided to to do this. Um, you could be um, exposed to criminal or civil pen- penalties if you try to do it. Um, and then, as the piece from the 19th News makes clear, without accurate identification, transgender and non-binary people face greater risks for violence, discrimination, and harassment in everyday interactions, like while showing an ID at a club or a grocery store or while traveling. So, Polly, let's start with you. I mean, to me, it's a, like a shocking escalation of attacks on transgender Floridians. I mean, I think, unfortunately, Florida has been at the vanguard of targeting trans people um, and restricting their ability to go about their daily lives in community with all of us in the way they need to. Um, I would say, you know, for me, legally, like your driver's license, even more so than a birth certificate or other forms of identification, you use it so much in life, so much. It is really a key to so to being part of like the common marketplace of the world, right? Like, yeah, driving, going shopping, getting a buying a bottle of wine, and to to be, you know, forced outing and and to be subject to um, criminal and civil penalty and not be able to have ID that reflects who you are, it is so harmful. Before uh, EJ, you and Grace respond, let's listen to uh, Dr. Rue Ducko uh, spoke to WFLA in Florida. It does cause so much more issues with trying to get our paperwork, um, so many other issues that driver's licenses are also used for. I really don't see where it would uh, particularly cause an issue with them enforcing the law. Whether you're male or female, if you break the law, you break the law. All right, Grace. Um, the population that you serve, young people, they're you know getting their driver's licenses all the time. Um, I just was struck that certainly that population is going to be hit heavily in Florida. Absolutely. And and when we're thinking of, 
you know, the, the, where this started from the right in terms of attacking the trans community, they, they started attacking, you know, children or, or folks under 18 uh, with the perception that, oh, well, you know, we care about the kids. But of course, this affects trans people of all ages, the entire community and, and, and anyone who is uh, uh, of any age who is more recently transitioned. And so to be denied the opportunity, the basic right, or what should be a basic right of, of having your your legal documents reflecting who you are, uh, it, it it can it will increase the the, the lack of safety. It will increase the situation where somebody's visually seen one way and their documentation says something else, and that places them at risk. So this is this is really disturbing and shows that their real agenda is was was not about anything about uh, protecting young people. It was an it, it is an attack on the trans community as a whole. EJ. Again, I'm going to go very big. I think that coverage of these individual incursions into um, personal dignity and uh, recognition have to be seen as a group. There is a concerted attack in this country on anyone who does not look like a white Christian nationalist. Um, and the most vulnerable populations are being targeted first, but uh, so... Um, immigrants, um, uh, poor black voters, um, and trans people. Uh, but I, th I think it's all of a piece, an attempt to create and demonize and rule out of acceptable life, a subgroup of people who, some subgroup of people, and I don't, I mean, everyone that I just referred to, not just trans people, in order to attack democracy in general. If you don't have a driver's license that reflects who you are, you can't vote. Um, in Ohio, two, the Secretary of State's office pulled off the ballot two people, two trans candidates who had filed their paperwork without publicizing their birth name, um, according to some obscure rule. So th this is a matter of narrowing the acceptable citizenry. It's an attack on democracy. It starts with the vulnerable people and then it expands to someone like the town's uh, town manager and someone who flies a pride flag. This is really a major attack. Many journalists have noted as well that there are a host of bills and rules and um, other restrictions that are happening all over the country. So to your point, EJ, this is not a single issue situation. So we now have a group of transgender bathroom bills. We now have the Ohio Senate having to override the governor's uh, veto of trans care and the sports ban in that city um, and on and on and on. Um, and that was a, a real uh, political story. So EJ has already weighed in on taking this all together and what it means. I'll ask you now, Grace, um, what do you see? Well, I'm seeing that exactly the same thing, that this is uh, an, an organized, sophisticated effort from the right wing 
uh, and from one major political party uh, to as an attack on multiple communities. And as I've said before on this program and others, uh, it is so important that we all stand together. They they want to divide us. They want to separate out trans people from L cisgender LGB people. They want to separate LGBT people from people of color, as though people can't be all of those things, uh, and separate it out from immigrants and separate it out from others. And so we have to stand together because this is really attack on democracy and all of our communities. And they're they 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 have they're they're being very effective. And the only way we can counter that is to is to be just as effective uh, fighting back. Well, Polly, that uh, leaves you with the last word on this. And you just said you were in New Hampshire looking at a whole roster of new bills coming up. It feels a little bit like um, legal and advocacy whack-a-mole. I second what's, what's been said. Like, it is, we are seeing in the state legislatures an attack. Um, and to me, it's really about autonomy and freedom and, like, the ability to be who you are. Um, I mean, I do a lot of work on um, not only anti-trans bills, but also like family law bills. And I mean, people are attacking the right to build your family, to use assisted reproduction, um, to protect your family, like particularly LGBTQ families and their children. It is an all out assault. Um, and it's not only in trying to hold back the bills in the legislature, but to the extent that they passed, and unfortunately many have passed, uh, we need a whole host of folks um, litigating um, and challenging those bans in court because um, we have obviously good arguments to make. Um, I think the thing that kind of keeps me going is, um, you know, there's been in my mind like more collaboration in across movements than ever before. Um, and it's really, you know, the folks who are working together are are feeling that collective purpose, are feeling that we're standing up for each other. We're going to stand together and we're going to fight these bills and we're going to stand for like our common humanity for all of us to be respected and protected. Um, and having those individual conversations, sometimes it's one by one to go to legislators and show the stories of their constituents um, and why they shouldn't do, you know, they shouldn't take extremist action that we know is not based on real need. And to your point, you raised, uh, uh, our, you pointed our attention to something that uh, is going on here in Massachusetts about some antiquated laws that are not in, not crafted so that they can recognize its current changes in what a family looks like. Uh, say a little bit about that. So parentage, that 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 relationship between a parent and a child that is so important for children's stability. Um, Massachusetts laws, unfortunately, are haven't been updated in over 40 years. And what that means is um, many children are vulnerable and don't have the protections that they need, particularly children born through assisted reproduction, children born through surrogacy, children born to de facto parents. Um, you know, the laws just haven't kept pace. Um, and in this national environment, right, where we have the Supreme Court threatening to overturn Obergefell. We have state courts that are um, taking the presumption of parentage away from lesbian parents. Um, you know, it's just really important for us to get our house in order and make sure that, you know, families in Massachusetts are protected no matter the circumstances of a child's birth. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Grace Sterling Stowell, Executive Director of Bagley, E.J. Graff, Managing Editor of Good Authority, and Polly Crozier, Director of Family Advocacy for GLAAD. We're discussing the major stories in LGBTQ news. E.J., um, Grace, you want to comment on the family law situation? 
I, you know, I, I'm thinking of it in terms of the, you know, the young people that we see uh, at Bagley and and through the Angley network across the state, um, and and families who, you know, thankfully more and more families are being supportive uh, from the earliest ages, and how important that. We we know that that a family support is essential for the the well being of young people and some of the the worst uh, outcomes emotionally physically and in many other ways comes from lack of family acceptance and so uh, it's so important that the 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 laws reflect uh, the, uh, the 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 important role that families play in the lives of young people and make sure that that's protected. I'm actually going to go back to my previous point, Kelly. I'm I'm a little I feel a little bit like an Old Testament prophet on this point right now. Um, the attacks on all of us, and I'm I'm very grateful for Polly's work and all the work on protecting our families um, in a state like Massachusetts that is, for the most part, on our side. Um, but the 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 larger attacks, I'm really terrified about them. I haven't felt like this in decades, really. Um, I feel like this is uh, the need to demonize at the level that so many people are being demonized is uh, a first foray of authoritarianism. Really feel like some of these laws are like early Jewish laws in Nazi Germany. And I'm not, I'm Jewish, so I don't invoke Nazi Germany very often. Um, they're, they're, these are very serious ways to get totalitarian and authoritarian forces um, riled up and willing to attack anyone that does not get in line. I'll stop on that now. Um, that brings me to what could be perceived as a, a, another positive move in Massachusetts, and that's the Senate passing this bill to repeal these antiquated sodomy and anti-transgender laws. So the state Senate unanimously passed the bill. It has to go to the House of Representatives where it's expected to pass. I think one thing to say about this is that versions of this bill, um, according to the piece, have been proposed many times, but, but it never made it this far. And I am wondering, and you all can speak to that, if it is because of looking outside of our our state borders and seeing what is happening both legislatively and um, in in some places communally um, that is threatening in the way that EJ has described, that this sort of energize uh, the Senate to say, you know, we really have to get this stuff off the books because, um, EJ, you referenced that situation where uh, they were the trans people who were running for office, and then the old law says, well, you better have, you have to have this. So uh, by removing uh, sections that say a reference to common night walkers, common street walkers, both male and female, and um, as was discussed by um, the senators before they voted, that this, if you're visibly queer or trans, maybe somebody could also label you a common night walker. So um, Polly, you're looking at all these bills. We're talking about it. This is in your wheelhouse. You know, this is a significant move. Yes. Yeah, I think it's really positive. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, sodomy laws have been deemed unconstitutional by the SJC and by SCOTUS. But I think, you know, keeping them on the books is just, you know, un- unnecessary and, you know, leads a potential you know, for their enforcement at some point in time. And it's it's good to, again, put our house in order. And I think the the common night walking 
piece is really important, you know, in the moment for for the over policing of transgender folks, particularly transgender people of color, um, and that we want to, um, you know, make sure that uh, we're not opening them up for that kind of targeting through our outdated laws. So I think it's really positive. Um, and, you know, I think it's just the kind of work we should be doing to see, you know, how can we make sure that both the folks in the Commonwealth are being treated with equity and with respect and that we're being aware of the national context. And, um, you know, because we are seeing threats to, um, you know, there's threats to Lawrence, right, the right to same-sex intimacy, the right to marriage. Um, you know, for instance, our, our our marriage laws are still talk about a husband and wife, right? Um, there's a lot of ways in which, um, you know, the 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 get, getting the house in order and making sure that our laws are really speaking our values right now. Um, and it's really important. It's, it's great to see the legislature acting in that way. Grace. Well, as somebody who's been uh, visibly queer and trans since, uh, you know, before Stonewall in the 60s, uh, you know, this hits home for me. Somebody who has been a target uh, by from everyone, from law enforcement to uh, people on the street. And so uh, it, it, it was always great that we reached the point of after years of advocacy where these laws were not enforced. But the fact that they could be by bad actors, it means that it's more important than ever that they be that they be changed so that they are they're they're just off the books. And EJ. Absolutely. I, I mean, if you can have um, a police going into a school because of a book, you absolutely have to get laws cleaned off the books that are completely archaic. We have the privilege of being in one of the oldest states um, in the United States, but that means there are some uh, vestigial laws that, as Polly and Grace have said, can really be used against people. And I'm yet again proud of Massachusetts. Well, let's end um, with some joy. Uh, the duet between Tracy Chapman and Luke Combs at the Grammys was a highlight, is still being talked about. And um, Tracy Chapman, very revered uh, folk artist who wrote the song Fast Car, which was uh, has been a a a um, well one that you know people have revered as well. Uh, won a Grammy for the 1989 Grammy Awards. Luke Combs recently uh, covered it and has made a big bank off of it and gotten a lot of attention. And he's made it his business. Um, to give her the credit and raise her up and talk about the genius of the work. And uh, he's a country singer, and there's a lot of stuff going on in country music uh, as they're trying to to come to grips with um, um, their response to LGBTQ folks, and, and she is. And so to see them together on, on the Grammys, people are noting as a pivotal cultural moment. Uh, what say you, EJ? Oh, it's awesome. I mean, some of us uh, are old enough to remember when she was playing in little tiny places around Harvard Square. Um, it's really great to see Tracy Chapman, who has brought so many of us so much joy, uh, get her due and show up and look so shiny on the Grammys. She looked she looked happy and she deserves it. And Grace, what about this moment that uh, with Luke Combs' uh, acknowledgement and respect on full public display? 
Well, you know, I think it's always so wonderful when public figures model good behavior and and respect and valuing and and acknowledging that they they didn't do it all alone and and all of that. And I think uh, when one artist uh, pays tribute to another artist and they support each other, and it was a wonderful moment on the Grammys, but but it's so much larger than that because it's this isn't the discourse the public discourse that we're hearing from so many other quarters and and here was something where you know on the surface people would have thought oh two very different people two different communities you know would they would they even know each other and and here they are uh, uh performing together with such love and joy Polly you get the last word oh my gosh well first of all i would just say that tracy chapman is an icon and I listened to her music growing up and think she is so outstanding. So I just love have, hearing her song played on. But I think it is just, you know, him, Luke Combs, like kind of being a worshipful stance to her just makes me feel so good. And I think reminds us, I think people's response to that is that, you know, people are thirsting for that connection, right? Thirsting for that positive energy. That's that, and there's so much potential for that in our world. And yeah, like Grace said, they're modeling just the best. They're both so gracious to each other. Um, I, you know, I think it was a really powerful moment, uh, a really positive power, positive moment. And I hope um, we see more of it. Well, I thank all of you uh, for joining me. Hope to see more of you a little bit later on. So thanks. Thank you. Grace Sterling Stoll is the executive director of the Boston Alliance of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer Youth, or Bagley. E.J. Graff is a journalist, author, and managing editor of Good Authority, an independent site publishing insights on political science. And Polly Crozier is the director of family advocacy for GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders, or GLAD. Coming up, almost 30 years ago, President Bill Clinton formally declared the president's initiative on race. The goal, to jumpstart a national discussion about race. Arguably, there was more conversation about the initiative than the actual communal conversation he'd hoped it would inspire. In 2016, former Boston Mayor Marty Walsh ushered in a similar citywide race conversation. Last month, GBH announced a multifaceted program to spark a current public conversation about the nation's race history. GBH President and CEO Susan Goldberg will tell us why the multi-year reckoning and repair is a discussion for right now. Plus, author and journalist Michelle Norris's latest book reveals that a conversation about race is happening, just not out in the open. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I remember when you were a child, riding in your car, 